This is why I can't talk to you on a regular basis. Like, <laughs> why it was the dumbest fucking idea to ask you to be third co-host of the show. Because you take away the things that I hate. <laughs> like, you make it harder for me to, like, academically hate something. I'm going to put that on the business card. Mia Steinberg makes it difficult. I take away the things that you hate. <laughs> you are now tuned in to drink this podcast. Matt and Paul G. Chatting top quality, you know they always got a free talk policy. Guests speak honestly, no apology. Full spectrum from politics to comedy. Please listen responsibly. A few brew in, chance of animosity. A couple more brew when the crew getting wobbly. No matter this, the park place of podcast monopoly. Drink this podcast. Everybody's ready? Yes. Excellent. Welcome to Drink This Podcast. We're an Edmonton-based podcast where we celebrate good drinks and good conversation. My name is Matt. Sitting with me again today is Mr. Paul. Say hello, Paul. Aloha. And sitting with us again uh, in part two of her first episode as official co-host, Mia. Say hello, Mia. Hello, Mia. Yes! Dad joke! You got to do it. Well done. (laughs) You got her in there. All right, so last time uh, we were discussing... uh, We've been having a kind of an in-depth discussion of Disney as a company and Disney as a content creator, uh, and we said a lot of very nice things about them. We we sang their praises, yeah. if you will. So let's um and and with all and as always with every episode of Drink This Podcast, like the things that I intended, the the way that I intended the conversation to go is not the way that the conversation has actually gone. <laughs> I always and that's part of the beauty of this podcast. Right? I feel I always feel uh, that this podcast is centered around a principle that Douglas Adams created. Uh, I don't okay. know if you've ever read the Dirk Gently books at all. I have not. Okay, so Dirk Gently is a holistic detective, and sure. uh, he usually uses it to bill code ladies out of their money to fly to Tahiti, where he tells them that's where their cats are. Um, <laughs> is perfectly douglas adams right exactly so he's like oh i can find your cat it's just the answer to that is in fucking some tropical island uh but dirk operates under a principle that's like and he states it in in, in a way that's i believe the written word is i may not have gone where i intended to go but i definitely ended up where i needed to be that is exactly this podcast. I, I, I 100% agree. It's actually, <laughs> it's actually what's written under my yearbook photo in high school. Uh, <laughs> and uh, last time we were discussing, as I say, we were discussing Disney. Uh, so let's do this this thing. We, we wrapped up last time with kind of the eras of Disney. Let's talk about, um, say their names again, Mencken and Ashman. and Ashman. Let's talk about Disney's hiring of Mencken and Ashman. To write some musicals, and we'll 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 segue that into a discussion about. I, I want to briefly touch on them, uh, and then we'll talk about why Disney is a pack of fucking assholes, uh, and then we'll move into a, a broader conversation from there. So, uh, in 1989, uh, call it 87. I want to say okay. So, when, in, considering when things would have been in development, it would have been about 87. Okay, so 1987, Disney is prepping Ish. to make a movie yeah. called The Little Mermaid. Oh, no, but slightly before that, they, they had made something called <clears throat> Oliver and Company, which oh, okay, is a okay. very loose adaptation of Oliver Twist. Right. With a kit with a kitten. And to write Oliver. a song for this movie, they hired yes. Mencken and uh, Ashman. Yes, so uh, Alan Mencken and Howard Ashman, whom you guys may know as the writers, well, you may not know, but like everyone ever has heard of Little Shop of Horrors, yep. uh, they wrote that. 
they also wrote a an adaptation of a Vonnegut uh, novel. Really? Which really? one? God bless you, Mister Rosewater. Rosewater. Oh yeah, I, I love that book. That I think was actually one of their first. I can see that. Um, what an so, excellent so side note, Paul and I. Yeah. Sort of fresh, fresh off of off Broadway, because right. like that's yeah. Um, so they they got brought in, um, and Howard Ashman in particular, who was the lyricist, got brought in to write a song called "Once Upon a Time in New York City," which is the opener for Oliver and Company. Oliver and Company. Yeah. Um, then uh, Disney sort of company history has it that Ashman was walking the halls of the animation studios in Burbank, California, where he he kind of got pulled in or he stopped in on the. Uh, storyboarding sessions for the next sort of animated feature they were planning, which was The Little Mermaid. And mm. there's a lot of corporate politics that I'm a little too tipsy to and go into. Is and Ashman the lyricist in this partnership? And Mencken is the songwriter. Composer, yeah. Or the composer, um, sorry. Uh, and yeah. this is kind of almost a direct parallel to the guys they worked with for uh, things like Mary Poppins. I, their names escape me, but... The Sherman Brothers. The Sherman Brothers, exactly. So yeah. we can draw a nice yes. parallel there. But I also yeah. just want to drop in here and there's a reason we're talking about this uh is uh, ashman and mencken were partners they were no 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 oh they were uh, partners they were not partners they were songwriting they were they were musical but partners, they weren't but life partners no uh but the the overarching point of that is is that um basically uh you know ashman so the first part is that ashman's ducked into the storyboarding mm-hmm. meeting on the little mermaid where the sidekick butler crab character was a very stuffy british fellow and right. he went well why don't you make him why don't you make him jamaican so that we could incorporate calypso music into the soundtrack and then all of a sudden sort of light bulbs went off over everybody's heads right. and that's sort of how and if under the sea is playing in your head right now that's the, like exactly what, what happened is that ashman and Mencken came on and sort of ended up writing all of these songs but ashman is openly um, gay at this point I mean, not I, he's not out. At he's, he's, well, so, so at some point during the um, process, and I could flip pages, but anyway. I think I should rephrase. Point, he was gay the whole time. Just, he, he was, was gay the whole time. He was at out. Point, at one point um, during this process, yes, uh, he, you know, he goes to, again, the CEO of Disney, whom I should mention is a Jewish man um, at the at the time. Michael mm-hmm. Eisner was Jewish, and he was actually very conscious, and you would have read this part, yep. conscious of the fact that he was coming into a company that was founded by, you know, on these traditional good Christian values. All right, that, Walt and Disney wasn't by somebody really, who's sometimes openly talked about as a Nazi sympathizer. Not, actually, no. There's actually a really, really interesting uh, article on why we're so obsessed, whether Walt With, Disney was anti-Semitic, and... The, the reigning uh, consensus is that he wasn't. He was, you know, like, insofar as... Everybody was at that time? Kind of racist. Everybody was kind of racist. But, like, I'm a Jewish person who's still... And, again, we're going to arrive at this ability to sort of sit with both, <laughs> both Jews. But, anyway, so he... But he was, you know, so... But Ashman goes... To, went to uh, Jeffrey Katzenberg and Michael Eisner and said, Hey, I'm, I'm gay. I'm a gay man. You know, like, is, is this okay? And they said, Yeah, no, that's that's not a problem. Don't worry about it. We'd be happy to work with you in the 80s. So that's like... Yeah, and sir, yeah, we should say that this is all taking place in the 80s, a time when the president himself would not say the small three-letter, four-letter word that was killing the gay population of America. Like by the thousands. So um, Little Mermaid is um, a huge 
lightning bolt of a success. Mm-hmm. It gets nominated for two Oscars for Best Song. It wins one of them, I believe, for Under the Sea. Um, and backstage of the Oscars, uh, Howard Ashman pulls Alan Menken aside and tells him he has AIDS. Jesus. And uh, then they get hired on, and they, you know, the the, the Disney bigwigs go, okay, we've knocked this one out of the park. Mm-hmm. The next film we make, we want to have it be a, a musical from the ground up. So let's bring on Ashman and Mankin from the start instead of sort of midway through. Right. Um, and Ashman tells Eisner and Jeffrey Katzenberg, who was the head right. of the Disney production studio, right. he says, you know, he tells them that he has AIDS. And instead, and again, this is in 1990, yeah. give or take. 1989. A time 19- when it used to be thought that you couldn't share a comb with somebody with AIDS without contracting yep. it. Which is and not so true, he, by the way. But he, so he goes to this, you know, as we've sort of alluded to in last episode, this this traditionally conservative values sort of company. And right. he says, I have AIDS. And the response from Ashman and Mencken. And, and so I'm going to read now from James Stewart's Disney War. So, um, so uh, Ashman told his partner, Bill Louch, that Katzenberg had been great, taking the news in stride. Okay, Katzenberg said, what do you need? We'll do it. Schneider and Eisner were equally supportive. They were surprised but realized that they shouldn't have been at given Ashman's increasing absence in California. At considerable expense, Disney moved the entire Beauty and the Beast team to the Residence Inn, an extended stay hotel in Fishkill, New York, um, a Hudson River town not far from Ashman's house. Screenings were held at the hotel. Ashman continued to review storyboards and to sing new lyrics to Mencken's songs in an increasingly weak but determined voice. So in the, in the late 80s, early 90s, in the late 80s, early 90s, so you haven't arrived at this part of the book. No, I haven't. So um, in, the, in the late 80s, early 90s. Um... So um, the reason we want to talk about uh, Disney's progressive acts is because let's talk about the two movies that we just discussed and what what the message of those actually is. Because Disney has a habit uh, and like they they take a lot of flack for their princess series, even when they do things like, like let's put put this away. It took until twenty fifteen for Disney to. Oh uh, no, that's not true. I guess Pocahontas would count as a non-white princess. Yes. But it took a long time for Disney to include a non-white a not white woman as their yes. princess. Disney has a habit, as we've said, of having some very strong conservative values. And the message of these the messages of these movies, as I said in the upfront of the previous episode, while surfacely liberal, are actually quite conservative. Uh, let's take The Little Mermaid, for example, which, yeah. in my mind, the message is, shut up and he'll marry you. Uh, just don't yeah. talk. And it'll work out great. Um, you can do this, you can play this fun, like, very base-level game with any Disney movie, up to and including Beauty and the Beast, which is, it's okay. I can change him. You can attach a trope of abuse to any... <laughs> oh, you'll get your turn. I can see you. I, I can know. see your I face know. cursing. Just keep the knives <laughs> in the pockets, okay? But you you can't deny that, that, that that's present. Like, it's very much a woman who walks into a relationship with a, a man with anger issues and is like, no, no, it's good. We can change him. And she does. Um, leaving out the colonial aspects of Pocahontas, and I've never even oh. seen Hercules, so I couldn't tell you what's wrong with that what? movie. Even I've seen Hercules. Her- 
Hercules is pretty great, but only if you just sort of imagine that actual Greek myths are a totally different thing. <laughs> Take like, it as it's just... not an adaptation. It's an adaptation of Greek myths in the same way that, like, the Stardust movie is an adaptation of Neil Gaiman's Stardust novel in that kind of, but not really yeah, at okay. all. Okay, fair enough. Like, early comic book movies. Or that. Kind of, anyway, but not really. But anyway, yes. so... Um, Yes. It's less rapey than actual Greek myths. There's a lot of second. There's a lot of of sort of feminist readings into film, and I want to make a distinction here between being an intersectional feminist and traditional second wave feminist <laughs> readings of film, particularly Laura Mulvey and her ilk, who just oh, hate okay. everyone. That's an and interesting point. Then, so what's the? Let's look at the those just because we've kind of highlighted them. Let's look at sure. the Little Mermaid and Beauty and the Beast. What's the yeah. difference between the second wave feminist critique of them and the intersectional feminist critique of them? It, like, um, uh, sorry, you kind of like you malign yeah. the second wave, and I I get what you're talking about. So for those who don't <laughs> sure. know, like second wave feminism, we're talking about white feminism TM Seven, essentially. Yeah, mm-hmm. very. 70. It doesn't include a, like it's just it kind of views women as a monolith. It doesn't include trans women or women of color. Nope. Or queer yeah. women, like it, 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 it yeah. works as long as you're a white lady, like an this... upper middle class white lady, really. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Fair enough. So, um, the traditional '70s sort of second wave feminist reading of, especially something, yeah, both of those films really is that any female character is uh, tamed is not the right word. Um, domesticated is the word that they use <laughs> by the end. Well Domesticated. Put. Because they get together with someone and you know are yeah. a now a, a spouse and a wife and whatever it, it's and like it's it's a critique i appreciate but like these women are yeah. incomplete until they are married to these men well the the feminist critique is that actually they were complete as single women and that uh the domestication of them by getting together with men at the end is the patriarchy taking over once again because if you are a second wave film theorist there is no such thing as anything nice. It's not even that we can't have nice things, it's that nice things don't exist. <laughs> so, how well put. Okay, so that's second wave problems. feminism. I had problems with... with and ex- explain, I, I'm so, this this conversation went a completely different direction. As I just said, I may not have gone where I intended to go, but I think yeah. I ended up where I needed to be. Let's talk about it this way. Rather than slagging on Disney for telling yeah. women to shut up and know their place, let's talk about the difference between a critique where nice things don't exist, which I get. I get that perspective, right? And it, it, it comes from an honest place. But let's talk about the next generation of critique. Let's let's observe this from a, a intersectional feminist point of view. Um, so how how is that different? Like, where do the nice things play um, into this intersect? How do you take that, like, that message, which is, is undeniably there. Like, yeah, you, you can't um, say it's not there. Well, I would say that it, you can't say it's not there in The Little Mermaid, but I, I have, and I have back up, like, I can back up my, my feelings on Beauty and the Beast, but I want to also, like, make sure that, you know, like, intersectionality also covers, you know, trans women and, and you know, women of color and everything that doesn't, unfortunately, doesn't really play into the two films that we're talking about. But let's, so let's instead call it the acknowledgement of uh, so rather than second wave feminism that sort of, yeah, okay. nothing nice exists, um, let's call this next one, your fave is problematic. Beautiful. Uh, and if, if you want to pick a different movie, I, I, like a different Disney film to kind of illustrate this. Now, to me, Beauty and the Beast is an excellent example of this okay. because it remains my favorite film of all time 
and I can sit simultaneously with the two uh, truths. Okay. Um, because there is, you know, so so we've gotten an, <laughs> <laughs> there's been an increase of. Uh, I just feel so bad that Paul keeps leaving. <laughs> he he is producing liquid <laughs> that like doesn't contain. Right well, he's he's making tea so that we don't get wasted. Okay, fair enough. Um, so you know, the internet has brought with it this increasing acknowledgement that there are problematic things in this world and in our media totally. and how we sort of present things, and uh, mm-hmm. that it's important. It's important to acknowledge those things. You know, it's the same thing time at around that like white privilege comes up, right? right. Where it's a thing where um, it's very easy to take personally because it's something that is a core construct part of your identity. Oh my God. What a brilliant way to think of it. I never thought of it as like, as tying it to privilege. Right. Cause like a lot of my, my uh, feminist experience has been like, well, no, this is fucked up. Why can't we just do it this way? And that's more interesting anyway, but to um, talk about yeah. it from a point where like, this is something that exists that we need to be okay with and try not to do in the future, which is how I view what like that kind of perspective. So continue. Sorry. Yeah. So, um, you know, the big mistake and the thing that I, you know, our plan in the docket was to just talk about our, you know, your favorite's problematic as a thing. Right. And I don't know that we're actually going to get to that, but the crux of the argument that I was going to make is that, it, uh, you know, as always, it comes down to the ability that uh, most of North America as a culture is lost to sit with cognitive dissonance. Yeah. Mm. To acknowledge one thing and feel another and to be able to, instead of rejecting the does not compute concept of that but to be able to sort of acknowledge it's a very mindfulness sort of concept right to be able to sort of say yeah this doesn't really add up inside my head and and yeah there are very problematic things but you know and and my brain is thinking one thing and my heart's going another way but that that's okay and that i think if we started teaching that in like middle or high school i feel like a lot of things would sort of get sorted out in the culture wars. So I didn't learn this method of critique until fourth year university when I took I epistemology. Yeah. And you learn that like, oh, right, a society needs a lot of different viewpoints to, to succeed. Yeah. And there are merits to this, this, and this, and there are downsides to it, but we need to balance it out with this perspective yeah. or that perspective. Um, so, you know, let's, so, so like, let's focus on Beauty and the Beast. It's the film I know better. Okay. And yeah, um, I'm, I'm content to let that lead. And it's the, honestly the probably day. the one that has the most, uh, in terms of argumentative sides, because there is absolutely, absolutely a reading of this film that is a uh, case of Stockholm syndrome yep. of an abused woman yep. who learns to, you know, please her abuser and then mm-hmm. falls in love with him and stays with him. Well, and from both angles, right? Like the place yeah. that she comes from, the, the start of that movie, the, the I'm wishing song of that movie, the chorus is ver- part in that is look how fucking weird that girl is. She's different. And I don't like it. Uh, and same with her father. Like later on, don't they put her father in fucking prison? Cause they do. yeah, exactly. And yeah. it's, and that's a, yeah. a lot of the critique that I've read and that I notice in that, movie and I'm like, yeah. granted it's been a long time since i've seen it uh but it's all well, about how i own it on blu-ray <laughs> oh did you buy it out of the dis before it went into the disney vault forever i did <laughs> i love how they do that but yeah, it's it, a, it's very much like a large theme of that movie is like with like right like even to the point that at the end when 
everything gets resolved, which I'm fine with. In, in terms of pure story, I'm fine with the resolved ending. But the resolving of that ending is he becomes normal. He becomes normalized to look like everybody else, to fit into to what society thinks it should be. The whole, isn't Gaston fabulous because he does all these things that we value? Isn't this lady weird because instead of learning how to be a woman, she's reading or she's always got her nose in a book? Uh, things like that. And I, I mean, you can see that in a lot of places. And I agree with you about like sitting with a lot of the messages in that movie, which is, and then like the, the flip side of that, that message, sorry, is to be yourself. To that. Keep, no, keep going. Cause... Well, but the, like I say, the flip side of it is, is to be yourself. Like on some level, yeah. the movie does um, encourage you to do what you want to do. But at the end of the day, yeah. everything still becomes homogenized. And I'm almost preferred coming well, back to DreamWorks, like a movie like Shrek, which ends with them both being deviant or Consider you know, yeah. quote unquote deviant or weird. Yeah, I mean, I would say that it would have been a different thing if he had been born a beast and then transformed into uh... a man. The thing is that he was not. He was born a man and transformed into a beast and then transformed back into a man. So like there is that, but it's it's not as problematic as it would have been if he was Okay, what an what an yes. excellent point. Um so, you know, there is absolute, so like, yeah, let's acknowledge that the, there is, um, the <clears throat> thing about the Disney princesses, especially, mm -hmm. is that there's this, they teach these very, very problematic, um, and I know, but problematic concepts of romance, and it's a thing that yeah. as a cis woman, I've struggled with, as you know, upon growing up, but, um, you know, and, and in Beauty and the Beast in particular, there's this whole idea of, oh, oh you can change him. Um, yeah. but I'm going to, but, but to speak from personal experience for a second, and this is not everybody's experience, but it's mine where <laughs> again, from last episode, or if you didn't listen, Beauty and the Beast was the first film I ever saw in theaters. And I went on to do film studies in undergrad and, and it still informs, I mean, film and music still inform a very large part of my identity and they tap into a very emotional part of me that I really think is like very primal. I, I Music in particular, which is why I'm such a fan of Howard Ashman, like, music really, really gets to us. Um, but, you know, you can, there are, I, and I see all these people who really say, okay, well, it teaches little girls that you, um, you don't that, talk, you, know, you, you get a man, change, you can no, change but, them. No, but you can change a, a very damaged man. Um, but for my personal experience, what Beauty and the Beast taught me was that bookworms were good. Because I was Belle. <laughs> I was a I was a bookworm. I was someone who read books and who was smarter than everyone around me in a lot of cases. Um who no one understood, uh especially when I was in like third or fifth grade because I skipped the fourth um oh, wow. and was still Look at you go. I, I skipped fourth grade and then I ended up in sort of a, a gifted program <laughs> after a fit, you know grade 5 of just intense bullying while I, I remember bringing I was 9 years old and I brought a you know, sort of age 12 and up mm -hmm. book into school. And, and just like the thing that Beauty and the Beast taught me was that lonely bookworms could find each other and that <laughs> there was someone and that there was good in the concept of finding a relationship based on the things that you love Interesting. rather than and the person you present. Because my uh, my wife Kelsey, I I'm pretty sure she says almost the exact same thing. Like the reason that she yeah. loves Belle is because Belle likes to read, and she always liked to read. So, and that's like I said it last episode, and I may have touched on it in the upfront for this one as well. Is that like there is that 
that line where on some level a Disney film teaches you a really excellent <clears throat> moral value, but it, it, it ends up steeped in a lot of the traditions and tropes of the yeah. ages they're produced in. Um, yeah. So uh, there's someone who's like a great deal more articulate than I am. And like, that's yeah. Mm. He's a very impressive film blogger whom again, I'm going to say Tim Brayton at Antagony and ecstasy, which you should Google. Um, this is a hard thing to spell uh, on over the air, but he has a beautiful essay series on the Disney animated canon, and his essay on Beauty and the Beast is particularly good because he, like all good Disney fans, Beauty and the Beast is one of his favorites, and really among us, like, like assholes, all good Disney fans. Well, like, a very among, second wave of you among the asshole hipster snobs of which i count myself like beauty and the beast is the best of the the renaissance because it was like little mermaid was the wind up beauty and the beast was the pitch apparent oh um, no that's that's a valid uh explanation and it was the it. one where everything came together really really mm -hmm. well jerry orbach so, jerry orbach and oh my god you you and mcgregor who plays lumiere jerry orbach plays lumiere okay then who plays the can no jerry orbach oh you're right no, then who plays the clock David Ogden Steers. David Ogden Steers. Uh, he's great. Yeah. Oh, um, So anyway, but we're going to, so I'm going to, I want to quote from the essay that he wrote, uh, Tim Brayton wrote on Beauty and the Beast uh, and this whole particular thing. So um, one can bring up any number of reasonable arguments that it is at heart a gross simplification, just like other modern Disney pictures. The commonest are that Belle's characterization is fake feminism, yet another example of a woman trading one patriarchal system, her slavish devotion to her father, for another, her marriage to the oh, ex-beast. Brilliant. Or, or that the message, which is judge people by how beautiful they are on the inside, is applied too thickly. To the first of these, I will readily agree that the seeming belief at Disney that showing a girl reading is inherently female empowerment is a pretty damn weak stand for a film to take in 1991. <laughs> But this is as far as I will take it, unless it is the case that any time a woman falls in love, she is supporting the patriarchy. We simply don't have enough data to predict what Belle's life as a princess will be like, but I do not think it will be so pink and ribbon-bedecked as will Ariel's or Cinderella's. As far as the heavy-handed moral derived from the argument that the beast is ugly but good while the village hunk Gaston is pretty but evil, that's tremendously difficult to square with the fact that at the start of the movie, the beast isn't good. He's a complete asshole, and his ugly exterior is a reflection of his inner self, not a mask. The difference between him and Gaston is not um, Machinian, between the good male and the evil male. It's between a jerk who, given time, is sufficiently respectful of the woman to whom he is attracted that he attempts to understand her needs and desires and to accommodate them as best he can, which includes to stop being a jerk, <laughs> and a man who views that the same woman as a trophy which is itself not a particularly hidden metaphor. True. The contrast, so the contrast is rather between a basically decent person and a total prick. I hope I have also finished addressing the fake feminist argument. I am not going to be so bold as to call Beauty and the Beast a film of female empowerment because I am quite certain it's not that. It is not, however, a film that tells little girls that they are incomplete without a man. Well said. I... Mm -hmm. This is why I can't talk to you on a regular basis. Like, why it was the dumbest fucking idea to ask you to be third co-host of the show because you take away the things that I hate. <laughs> like, you make it harder for me to... 
like academically hate something. Piss me off. I will also say that between the two of us, we did give you a bit more enthusiasm for Star Wars. Again. That's true. And, and I said it off mic, but God damn it. If that there's like a couple of things in that script that if tweaked, <clears throat> bring everything together so much better than what was executed. I will say on mic, you did also say, God damn it. You guys have made me feel enthusiasm for this again. You did. And then I went to see it and that enthusiasm was brutally murdered. Um, anyway, that's another. Yeah, that's another. Yeah. So Disney is not the only one. Only like, let's not pretend that Disney's the only company that falls victim to things like that. In fact, you could apply this critique, like this style of critique, and that was brilliant. Like that's really well said. Um, And I think it is a brilliant, brilliant man. It also takes into account everyone check out his blog. It takes into account um, what I think a lot of like radical or like heavily leftist leftist movements don't, which is what does victory look like. Uh, what does achievement of your goal look like? So um, we we talked a bit off mic, and and we'll this is how I want to segue into this. I have never been shy about the fact that I think that I a love Game of Thrones, and b find it so fucked up how much weird shit happens so casually in that show. We and had a whole episode about we, that. No, pretty not well. Really. Well, we talked with James for like a solid forty minutes. Yeah, but minutes. I I was not on my game. I should have been more prepared for that and i wasn't <laughs> and it's something it's like something i consider a personal failing that i wasn't prepared to call that shit out for what it was because i should have putting a sword in a woman's hand doesn't make her a strong female character and cutting <laughs> off a man's penis doesn't mean that you're treating both genders equally that's bullshit oh no uh, that's and that, and like so i have never been shy about my like both love of this show and frustration at its treatment of women because if you want to tell me that it's based on some time period, shut up. It has dragons in it. If you want to tell me <laughs> that, like, it's just the way the story is, shut up. It's a fantasy. We can we can create anything we want. That being said, today is what? May May 23rd. 23rd. The episode, and I like the number in the series, I think it's like three or four, episode <clears throat> three or four of season six, maybe four, sure. um, leads off with the some of the most amazing 20 minutes of television where, uh, as a vice article I read later pointed out kind of the, it's the show calling the audience to task. And like, if you want to talk about, if you want to put out into the ether that game of Thrones is problematic, you will receive some vitriolic ass pushback on a lot of levels, uh, which makes me think that I, which is all the more reason that I think I'm right about it. Like the, the fact that people are so ingrained in like, no, it's this, or it's it's a historical drama. Mm-hmm. No, it's fucking not. Um, it's a historical so drama with zombies and dragons. Point out with like every caveat that yes, I love the show. Yes, I enjoy the political intrigue. Can we not have some women with some goddamn agency? Uh, thank you for the link. Um, You're welcome. <laughs> that being said, this episode, the most recent episode as of this recording, which is May twenty third. Um, Gave Sansa Stark more agency and power than I've ever seen her have. And for a woman who's been brutalized by more than a couple men, it felt really good. And what this Vice article, I wish I could remember the author of it because I'd like to give them credit. But what they point out is that it's a really meta episode that's kind of calling the audience to task for all the stuff that they've casually observed over the course of these five seasons. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, And not only is it her describing what's happened to her, it's her forcing an oppressor to tell her what to describe to her what's happened to her to say these things out loud um and i had to say it i even posted on facebook like credit where credit's due i know i rag on this show a lot 
this is fabulous television. I feel fucking hurt as a as a fan of this show. Um, so, and 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 Game of Thrones is a really easy example to pull out. Like it's it's glaring in that show, but it's not so glaring in others. Uh, I believe that Mia, you've talked about Supernatural before, as just like white man central. Yeah. <laughs> um, what's really interesting about uh, the CW show Supernatural is that it is like white, like heteronormative cisgendered white guys from hell to breakfast, and uh, every woman and every person of color on the show has been killed off. They had a gay woman played by Felicia Day on on, and like they. Literal, they almost literally stuffed her in a fridge. I think they stuffed her in a, a bathtub full of blood. Jesus. And people were pissed at that point. But, like, yeah, it's a show that a lot of women really love, um, but is has a really awful track record with its female characters. Well, the and, pilot, doesn't the pilot literally start with the one brother's fiance getting, like, murdered up on yeah, the also ceiling? Yeah, also their mom. And their mom, yeah. I thought about this yeah. watching... Uh, I watched World War Z for the first time. Also, side note, World War Z is a fabulous movie, by the way. Is it? it I heard, wor- like, terrible things. No, it works so <laughs> well. At, it, taken as what it is, and outside of, like, what is traditional zombie canon, I think that movie works super well, especially in the context of a proposed universe where there's more stories about this. Yeah. Uh, but that's neither here nor there. Like, in this one scene where, like, people are going nuts and like looting a fucking grocery store like these two guys still take the time they're like we're gonna try and rape brad pitt's wife in the middle of the fucking dairy aisle and like he stops it and this cop kind of walks by and just ignores everything like he shoots this fucking dude dead brad pitt does and I'm like, oh my god this is brilliant and it's one of those moments where it takes a turn right like where it presents you with a a very serious scenario and like to kind of show you how fucked up things really are and as much as I'm not really a fan of using rape as a plot device, it, yeah. using it as as a measure of gravity of the situation in the way that they did, I feel was like well executed because like nothing really happens <clears throat> and somebody pays for their action, pays the consequence of their actions in the context of the scenario, which is you fucking die. Um, so it was interesting, and the movie takes a lot of really dark turns. Like there's a moment where you think he's gonna fucking pitch himself over the edge of a building in front of his wife and kids. And you're like, shit so yeah the movie takes some flack for and it, it was a complete box office bomb not unlike your beloved dread which is why they'll never make another one but i think it functions very well as a disaster movie don't think of it as a zombie movie think of it as a natural disaster movie and you will enjoy that's another it. episode and that's another episode that is together. totally another episode um, so yeah. I, Paul's been relatively quiet throughout the rest of this, being and not only like not really big into Disney, but also not big into musicals, which are just two like in terms of this conversation, uh, despikes. But we definitely wanted to bring him in on this. Like your fave is problematic. He said he had some things to say, so I'm gonna like hand him the talking stick and let him go. I, I also don't watch zombie movies or television. <laughs> <laughs> I don't either. I kind of zombies are one of the few things that actually gives me nightmares. So I I don't do that. Mm. Interesting. I had no idea that that was like your. It's something about the loss of self. Um, but that's a that's a <sighs> fascinating. A, what an excellent take on that. Like I, I I actually can't like the the later um in the uh, sorry this over again, uh within the Star Trek franchise mm. I have issues with some of the later episodes of Voyager when they deal with the Borg, Borg. because they're oh. essentially space zombies and I okay then you should not watch World War Z I'm not planning <laughs> on watching it they as much as they do the like hyper fast agile, agile zombie 
they don't treat them as individuals. Like the zombies themselves are treated almost as a as a whole <clears> unit. <throat> like the horde itself is a character in a, the I'm movie. A, I'm actually really surprised this has never come up because um, I was at a, a party years and years ago where I tried to talk them out of renting it. And <laughs> how long ago this was? We were at a blockbuster renting <laughs> movies. Uh, and the, it's your the parents, kids, yeah. yeah. That's the crowds, cool. the crowd that I was with, um, I talked them into renting Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels, and they rented, uh, I want to say Zombieland, which the is one also with a great movie. Jesse Eisenberg, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's so a fucking great. I I made it about satire. fifteen minutes in, and then I had to go upstairs. Mm-hmm. I I got colossally drunk to try and like not be really? in the moment, and then I ended up leaving. And somebody ended up like they came up and said, "Is everything okay?" And I said, "I told you, I don't do zombie movies." You put on a zombie movie. But I gave it a shot. I can't do this or if I'm not going to sleep for but a week. It's also the true position of an <laughs> academic who spends their time developing their mind muscle to like think of like there could be a scenario where your body's walking around, but you don't have the ability to control or think. The scene, yourself. I lost that and I stopped paying attention in the opening scene with the chick that he takes up to his apartment. Oh, yeah, that's... And I'm like, no, this is something I can't handle. So anyways, it doesn't matter. But, but there was there something that you wanted to lay into the your famous problematic conversation? Was there something you... I, I, there have been comments we've long since moved past, but there were some tie-ins I had in the last episode. Oh, damn it. Well, you gotta, you gotta speak up. It you didn't gotta... work in the context. Um, Matt made a comment about going back to things, or maybe it was Mia, made a comment about going back to things and finding problems that you didn't have when you first watched them. It was probably both yeah. of us. Um, so... The, I, like I actually broke out my moleskin notebook to take notes because I'm trying to be better about remembering these things. Uh, and about a year or so ago, I set out to reread a great number of Isaac Asimov novels, um, specifically trying to work through chronologically his whole greater narrative universe, because he tied most of what he wrote together later in his life. Um, and I started this off uh, by rereading the foundation trilogy, which I read like 13 years before which comprises which books uh i should probably break it out but it's foundation foundation and empire and something i can't remember the name of the names but they're they were serialized short stories that were published in science fiction magazines in the 40s like early 40s that ended up getting compiled like i have a, an omnibus edition of all of them um but it was three novels which were i mean those are those are foundational not to pun unintentional in the the science fiction universe this was to talk about eras, the golden era of science fiction with right. uh, Bradbury and Asimov and all like this was, this was that era. Right. Uh, and the foundation trilogy is basically set like that, 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 that set the narrative tone for space opera, which is a big thing and separate conversation. But anyways, um, so I read those when I was younger and I really, really enjoyed them. Uh, and I did enjoy them in reread, but Holy shit. Were those products of the forties? Uh, women basically don't exist. Um, with the exception of about half of one of the novels where there is a, an adolescent mm-hmm. woman who is the narrator, who is very clearly not a, like this is credit where credit is due. Asimov made the decision to have this narrator and the main uh, character mm-hmm. be a young woman mm-hmm. in an era when the expectation would be that it was a young man. But right. aside from changing he to she, that that's about it. Eh, yeah. Like you, you, you've read these novels. Yeah. 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 No? I've never read any asthma. Okay. Um, and at this point, I probably won't start because if I'm going to read science fiction or fantasy, it's probably going to be by a lady or a queer person or someone of color. Which is fair. Um, because, anyway, it was just, I, it, I, res- it, I intensely <clears throat> respect Asimov for his contribution. It was striking to go back 
and reread some because I think the first of those stories came out in like 1941. So like this is old yeah. now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and what I suppose struck me more than anything was that I didn't notice this when I first read them when I was like 13. It was a, oh, yeah, of course men are doing this. And then rereading it at 26 mm-hmm. or whatever, 25 when I read them. Uh, about halfway through the first novel, my first thought was women don't exist in this. Yep. Like they literally do not exist. And when I was younger, the thing that struck me the most was everybody smokes tobacco. <laughs> uh, so yeah. that really struck me. And the other, the other comment that I had was tying back to something we talked about off mic, which is the show, the Americans, which I want you guys to watch so we can talk about it on the air, because I think it's a great show. And in terms of gender dynamics, I think generally they do a really good job. And I could be misremembering this because it's been a couple of years, but I'm pretty like, sorry, for those who aren't familiar with the show, uh, it's riffing on uh, the actual in real life Russian spying they uncovered in the States a couple of years ago, um, except set during the Reagan era. Right. Uh, and the, the, the pilot starts within a couple of months of Reagan getting elected as president. And that's sort of the, the shtick of it. But the, the two main characters are deep undercover uh, Russian agents who spend a great deal of time fucking people for the sake of their country and getting information, whatever. Right. And I'm pretty sure that the male of the two uh, is the first one to do so on camera. I could be wrong, but it's how I remember that. And what really struck me is when season three came out last year in the promotional material, uh, they had Matthew Reese, who's the male lead um, in a very stylish suit and tie. And they had Carrie Russell, the female lead in like, lacy thong and bra and stockings pressed up against him and i thought for a show that's generally very good about Mm -hmm. presenting fairly balanced gender dynamics and trying to examine the ways in which the both of them have to operate in the course of this and in sexual whatever um that they're the advertising resorted to very stereotype gender dynamics. Uh, there was a, a shot of uh, James Gandolfini as Tony Soprano on the cover of Vanity Fair that received similar critique because it was him in a, <clears throat> in a very nice suit and then this woman in a body stocking who's literally not even facing the camera, just kind of like draped across him, which is not out of context for that show, which I also <laughs> fucking loved. Yeah, me too. Um, Goddamn, that was a great show. That was a great show. Um, but it received a very similar critique where it's like, oh, this is clearly how the show treats women, and that's it, it, not wrong. Like, there, there are a lot, there are some very powerful women in that show, um, but by and large, they're they're props. <clears throat> I think yeah. what struck me about this so much is that there isn't that like having been a fan of The Sopranos. Mm. It's a mob show. Mm-hmm. Women are not often are not. Like their props or their, totally. I mean, f- half the scenes of the mob stuff and that was set in a fucking strip, strip club. club. So whatever. Yeah. But what struck me about the Americans is that there are a huge number of childish game fans who would just call you out on the fact that, yeah, it just so happens to be set in a strip yeah. club. Sorry. There's an episode of Tropes versus Women in video games that focuses on the fact that like most of Hitman takes place in or like there are a couple of things, mm. uh, missions from Hitman that are in a strip club. For the and I, I was a fan of that series, but yeah, women are not presented well in that. That's not yeah. just one game. Women generally are oh, in yeah. like underwear yeah. and die. Yeah. Which is yeah. why well, the RPG or like creators of RPGs tend to be the ones who get female players because they're the only ones who actually pretend like women play those fucking games. Well, or like, uh, what's it called? What, what was it called for? Game of Thrones, where um, 
they just would have the naked women on screen for the hell of it to oh god there was a like a portmanteau word for it oh i couldn't I, i've never heard a portmanteau for it i know there's a lot of scenes set in brothels where you like see women's yeah. bodies but not their faces uh, um yeah. I was I was trying to explain Game of Thrones to my father. I bought him the first two seasons of the show and the first two books because like I, he's a really big Tolkien fan and I feel like he can appreciate the political intrigue of it all. But like trying to explain the difference between the books and the show, I'm like, here's the thing: what the books lack in rape, they make up for in pedophilia, and what the show lacks in pedophilia, it makes up for in rape. Like it, it's just <laughs> fucked up, right? Like they have no problem telling uh, <clears throat> women this show is just not for you. Um, yeah. One thing I'm interested that hasn't been brought up yet uh, is Mad Men. I wanna... I'm surprised. I, like, am I the only one who watched the show at any length? I've... I watched. I watched the whole of the first season, and then I got sort of started to lose interest. But so, I got the crux. Um, I two of my closest friends just put that on in the background when they're doing other things. Mad I could, Men. Yeah, I couldn't make it past episode five. It's too soap opery. Um, I love it. I want to come back a step though before okay. we move on. Do it. Um, because there's something that you reminded me of uh, about, I don't know, 10 or 15 minutes ago, talking about rape as a plot device. Mm-hmm. Um, are you guys familiar with the author John Scalzi? I think you probably are, Mia. Yes, I, I follow not. him on Twitter. Yeah, me too. Uh, I've read many, most of his novels at this I'm, point. I have I'm, not, but he seems like a pretty cool dude. He's, I've never read any of We should talk about that off camera because his stuff is compulsively readable. But um, he's a, a contemporary, fairly popular uh, sci-fi author. Um, yeah. I think he's written one thing that wasn't science fiction, but like he, that's generally his deck. Uh, but he's also been a prolific blogger back to before the term blog existed. Right. So his website, whatever has existed since like 1998. Um, and okay. was an offshoot. So he's an internet pioneer. He's, he's both an odd, like he was a, a, a fairly well-known blogger before he published his first novel. And he actually published his first novel on his blog serialized. Interesting. Um, and so he wrote an essay a very long time ago about, the topic of rape as a plot device with the question basically being, is this absolutely essential to carrying Mm -hmm. the plot forward? Because if it's not, why are you deciding to do this? If it's just to make things seem gritty, why like, yeah, there's better ways to go. Could you not sub out other options for this? And this was because when he was a, cause he, he was had a career as a, a newspaper writer before he became an author. Um, and a mentor of his asked him, when he submitted a draft of something that had a rape scene in it, why are you choosing to do this? And Mm -hmm. is there another way that you could go about doing it? And I think that's a really interesting question because that is sort of the default of, and again, like I I was a fan of the Hitman games when I was younger and looking back on it, I still Mm -hmm. am. I just don't have a console that plays them. Um, But looking back on that, there was often as a a backdrop to be like gritty or to show whatever, uh, there were very scantily clad women Mm -hmm. in gangster situations who were targets or ran away uh, or whatever. And totally. looking at other, like the Sopranos and much of that was set in a strip club. And why is it that the strip club was the setting? Well, because we can have naked women and show it as being kind of gritty. Totally. It could have easily been set in the fucking meat shop. Yeah, exactly. And been just as the strip club added nothing to it, which is again, why I think it's interesting that Mad Men hasn't come up because there is a scene that's oft talk about where talked about. And I like, it's been a long time since I've a seen it and B read any kind of like, discussion on it but i know that joan's husband rapes her in the office oh my god oh god that scene exactly but it's never a scene that's called out for being gratuitous or unnecessary like well, it's... but the problem is it becomes the default right it's yes the, if we want and th- yeah. 
this was a thing from Manita Sarkeesian series, I'm sure, but it's because uh, I've watched most of that anyways. But um, it's it's that if you want to show something as being dark or violent or gritty or whatever, the easiest way to do that is to present it through the form of violence to women. Violence against women, yes. <clears throat> sexual violence. Uh, and I'm... Not even necessarily sexual violence, just violence, violence period. Violence against women. Is I... that if, if you want to show something as being lawless and depraved, mm. The easiest way to show that is to have somebody murder a hooker. Yeah. And that, that is pretty, like, that. that is kind of the default. Or a small child. Yeah, but it's harder to get away with that because then you get into the whole issue of children. I would note the Fallout series. You can kill literally anything but children. Really? In the new ones, not in the old yeah. ones. Because there was a perk you could get in Fallout yeah. 1 and 2 if you murdered enough children. But in the, the console-based RPGs... Huh. Uh, you can't even target them. Really? Uh, in VATS, if you want to try and pull a gun on that colony of children in Fallout 3, you can't do it. Can you, you can't, just aim mentally? You can't it? do anything to them. But really? you can kill birds. Um, in Fallout 4, they have cats that you can you can shoot those. You can kill literally anything, anything but, children. but children. So it's easier to show grit by taking out a woman than, than it is a child. A because child. if you take out a small child, somebody's going to come and say, well, you're promoting violence against children. But if you do that against women nobody's going to, or it is Very less true. common for somebody to come up and say, well, you're promoting violence against yes, women. Man. And if somebody does, the response can be, well, no, I'm just trying to present this as a, and, an awful place. And in fact, if you point <laughs> that out, there will be pushback as to why it was acceptable for that to be part of the story. Exactly. People will get up fucking set. That's the, I have been called simultaneously anti-feminist and promoting forced feminism when critiquing game of Thrones by the same person for the same comment. Well, it's the pushback that came back yeah. from Anita Sarkeesian saying it's the, oh, well, you just haven't played the games. I've played the Hitman games. Mm -hmm. I grew up with those. I really enjoyed them. Yeah. They're terrible to women. Yeah. That doesn't detract from their enjoyment, uh, from the value you can derive from playing yeah. them. Same with the GTA games, which I can't play anymore because they're just so fucking terrible. Mm. And I got so excited for GTA 5. I was like, this is going to be great. I'm like, oh, these games are fucking racist, sexist screes that I want <laughs> no part of. Which I'll also, I, I will say that's why I, I like Fallout. They're pretty good about that kind of thing. They are, because it's an RPG. Mia, go. Right, two things. Uh, one, that, um, yeah, using, uh, what's very interesting is that I've talked about Hannibal on this show very briefly before. And, and, and once uh, I finish it, we will have a full-on episode about it. And I will contribute as much as I did to the Disney discussion. <laughs> also, just while no, I have you guys, my food is on the way. Watch, watch Hannibal. Watch lambs or uh, read it no or read it and oh, watch, yeah. watch the first season of hannibal and then like i'll do the rest but uh the thing about hannibal yeah. which was created by brian fuller who was the guy behind dead like me and pushing daisies Ooh. and the new star trek series dead like me highly underrated show i fully agree yeah. okay we should talk about that sometime because that was a fantastic show i would rewatch dead basically, like me to have a conversation basically about it. every brian oh and wonderful Basically, every Brian Fuller show that's ever been created has been severely underrated by everyone, especially the networks. He needs to go to cable already. Mm -hmm. But yeah. anyway. And fucking What's-His-Nut gets three television um, shows after Green Lantern. Yeah, but anyway. Um, the thing about Hannibal is that, and this is like, I, it was taken from a, a Tumblr post that was screen capped, but like, the thing is that it's a violence-heavy crime show for horror fans that does not sexualize crimes committed against women. Yes. And That's very true. And 
And then they repeat that in italics, the, this Tumblr post mm -hmm. for like reasons to watch Hannibal. Because That's so it's, true. Because it's that important. And there is a whole interview with Brian Fuller on the fact like where they were, he's like, yeah, there's like a rape scene epidemic, which I don't know if I agree, but like there's mm -hmm. this whole thing where like rape is being used as a, oh God, uh, please put a, Oh yeah, yeah. I was gonna make a joke about how like if you keep coming on the show, it's just gonna I'm just gonna have to change no, the name God. to Trigger Warning. Please don't. No, like I don't want to. Like, yeah, no. And I like. I, and I mean, it's it's totally a function of the of the topics we're discussing. It's important to have there. I'm sorry that that was a very insensitive <laughs> thing to say. No, it's okay. Like as you know, and I want to say like I'm lucky enough to not have been any mm -hmm. kind of a survivor of any kind of thing. But anyway, um, the thing about Hannibal is that like. Yeah, Brian Fuller was like, yeah, no, that whole thing of, like, baking it grittier is bullshit. And mm -hmm. he's made an incredibly shocking, incredibly yeah. gritty, incredibly dark series that's beautiful and very shocking in which not a single, and I've watched most mm -hmm. of it, not a single female character is ever, ever, ever punished or sexualized. Because she's a woman. Because she's a woman. There's there is, like, a, there, early there on. Are sex, there are sex scenes. Mm -hmm. There's a your relationship mm -hmm. um like there's a lesbian relationship between the two women between two women they are never punished for having lesbian sex they're never punished for having <laughs> heterosex like no, ever totally it's true. so refreshing uh there is a lot of like uh, or especially early in that season when they're butchering women and then like placing them on the antlers where they're naked with but it's never sexualized right like it's never oh. about that paul yeah. jump in have you guys ever seen the show mr robot no no, I've never heard of it. Okay. Um, in the context of what we were just talking about, because there's a number of queer relationships in that show, um, yes. I 10 episodes. It's uh, kind of cyberpunky, but kind of look into okay. it. Okay. Um, if uh, let me, I'll put it to you this way. I will watch the first season of Hannibal. If you guys will watch the first season of Mr. Robot and we will do an episode okay. on each. Done. Because okay. I just finished that a couple days ago and it is a tough show to watch, but it's got a lot to Interesting. dig apart. We'll, uh, we'll also, address that on a future episode. My food's going to be here in like a minute or two. So just yeah. as a warning, the, the my buzzer is going to go off. I've, I was just about to like seal the deal and wrap this okay. up. I think this oh. has been a fabulous conversation. I don't know if Mia, if you have anything else you want to throw out there before we... Oh, I was going to say, because I've been watching Scrubs and Scrubs is incredibly <laughs> problematic. Yep. <laughs> In terms of how it treats trans and... Gay people. Like, gay people also as women. somewhat of a punchline. But you can still enjoy it for what it is. Mm. Overall, the whole point, as of any second episode of a given recording session of Drink This Pod, <laughs> uh, our, our inevitable drunken conclusion, of which we've like only done about 60% of the work. That's always, is, for any um, podcast, that's going to be the case. Because <laughs> they can't really be more than an hour and a half. We're like, I don't fucking care anymore. <laughs> Shut up. Uh, is uh, your pain your pain house. is problematic, and that's okay. Yeah, it's yes. totally okay. Like it, it doesn't mean you're a bad person. I'm, you can en touched on that part, but well, also I'm, I'm, you I'm, can enjoy something while still having a critique of it, exactly. which is the issue I have with the people on the internet. And that's what I want to finish with is like there are things that I love, but I think it's important that we talk about the problematic aspects of those things that we recognize that they exist and be able to call them out because when we do we get shit like Sansa Stark calling Littlefinger to task for selling her to a man who's a fucking psychopath yeah or I any, don't know. any I don't of know. this Maybe that's right just me. this was the issue I had last or two years ago now I guess with uh, like Gamergate and the rest of that is you can have critique 
while still saying so yes, I, I love this. Yeah. Here's what I find problematic about it. So the next time you encounter me on Facebook and I'm saying something that like Game of Thrones is fucking sexist, know that I still like it. I just think okay. that this needs to be talked about. And you could say that for everything from Disney all the way down to whatever you see at the fucking local playhouse for $5. Whatever. Yeah. As a coda, uh, to bring it to sort of tie things back together, I want to mention the fact that, uh, again, let's return to 1991. Okay. Where, again, AIDS was, like, still killing a lot of people. Reagan was no longer in power, but it was... But AIDS didn't go away with him. Uh, So Howard Ashman, the guy who wrote arguably most of beauty and the beast and made it what it was mm-hmm. uh died before he ever saw the completed product oh, um so do you mind if i keep this final segment do it okay um yeah because this is the thing that made me like reaffirm the fact that i love beauty and the beast and i love disney for what it is every part of it warts and all um was this all right um so in march 1991 uh katzenberg and schneider arranged a preview in new york city of the still unfinished beauty and the beast although it wasn't really as unfinished as the work they actually screened um so the opening sequence bell was fully realized and in color but most of the rest of the film remained in black and white it had the effect of focusing attention on the remarkable score and lyrics in the audience that night was a far more sophisticated crowd than the than was ordinarily drawn to children's animated films, press, critics, Academy members who lived in New York. The screening was part of a carefully planned strategy to get Academy Award consideration for Beauty and the Beast, which ended up happening. After the screening, David Geffen, Jeffrey Katzenberg, and uh, Peter Schneider rushed to St. Vincent's Hospital to brief Howard Ashman. The hospital in New York's Greenwich Village had become the leading AIDS treatment center in the country, but treatment consisted mostly of trying to ease the collapse of the body's immune system and the pain of debilitating afflictions. There was no cure and, as yet, no effective treatment. St. Vincent's facilities were all but overwhelmed by the epidemic, which had filled its wards with gay men of all ages and from all walks of life. Ashman had entered the hospital the previous December, and had, but had spent Christmas at, Christmas at his home with his partner, Bill Louch, and family members. He had kept working even though his health deteriorated. He and Alan Menken had resumed work on the Aladdin project and most of the score was finished. Now he had returned to the hospital. Word that three po- uh, powerful Hollywood executives had come to see Ashman rippled through the ward. Ashman lay in his bed, blind and frail. He had trouble breathing and could no longer speak. Geffen knelt by the bed and took Ashman's hand. You're going to recover, he said. This is going to be cured. A miracle will happen. You have to believe, just as you have inspired so many people to believe in magical things. You must never give up, and I want you to know that you are surrounded by people who love you. They couldn't be sure that Ashman heard or understood the words, but his eyes filled with tears. A week later, Ashman died. He never saw the finished print of Beauty and the Beast. Oh, my goodness. We're tearing up over yeah, here. Like... <laughs> I'm tearing up as well. I don't, I don't think there's... The thing is, and the fun, and the thing is that they dedicated. If you watch Beauty and the Beast, they there is a credit that says for our cry. It's okay. Who gave, who gave a woman a mermaid her voice and a beast uh something? Yeah, but basically they they dedicated Beauty and the Beast to him. And then in again in 1992, it would have been February 1992 for the Academy Awards. They uh Katzenberg arranged for uh Howard Ashman's 
partner to go up on stage and accept his Academy Award for Beauty and the Beast mm. song. Beautiful. I don't think so. There's... For that's the thing is like I can accept both of these truths at once. <clears throat> Disney is both beautiful and not horribly problematic. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think there's a better way to wrap this uh, conversation up. Mia, thanks yep. for joining us for this. Your first time as third. They're, like you realize that after this we don't thank you anymore you're just here right <laughs> yeah no absolutely okay not, yeah. so this is the last thank you you're gonna get before we're like fucking show up and do it it's your <laughs> you're 10 minutes late yeah, what, what the, the fuck Jesus. Uh, you can contact the show if you have something you want to weigh in in a lot of ways and especially if you subscribe to this show on itunes i'm trying to figure out how many of you are out there so let me know or just if you, how you get to the show in general, because I definitely want to sw- switch it over to our main website where we have total control. Which, worth reiterating, since I don't think we've said this on part two, we've launched a new website uh, formally, drinkthispod.com. Totally getting there. Um, okay, sorry. Um, so if you do, uh, however you subscribe, tweet at the show, at drinkthispod. Let us know how you get the show, because I want to I wanna know what kind of work we have to put in to maintain control of our feed while still making sure everybody who already subscribes continues to get the show and, and enjoy it. Um, you can contact us at DrinkThisPod on Twitter, DrinkThisPod at gmail.com, uh, facebook.com slash DrinkThisPod. And now for the first time, uh, DrinkThisPod.com. You can check out our podcast archive there. Uh, more stuff to be coming soon to the Screaming Doction Studios umbrella, but it's a, it's a, a one step on the journey of, uh, of this entire endeavor that I'm very excited about. Um, you can find me on Twitter. I am at Slingsbot. Paul? I am at Igor Zarubo, I-G-O-R-Z-A-R-U-B-O. Mia? At Mia Steinberg, M-I-A-S-T-E-I-N-B-E-R-G. Or, if you're just as drunk as us, go to drinkthispod.com. And you'll find it there. I will have All of our there. shit will be up there I at some point. I will put a link somewhere yeah. that says I, that. I tweet a lot, so... And she's a great tweeter, by the way. Um, <laughs> so, I, wanna, I just want to make sure I haven't missed anything. Um, by the way, Mio, you need to come up with a. You need to be indoctrinated into our fucking cult, and have a a grand something name. Because we, pa- I think we talked about this once. This may or may not make it to the air, but um, Paul and I, Paul J and I, uh, were once hanging out way back in the day and got a little drunk and came up with a pretend secret society, for whom all of our regular co-hosts have uh, come up with a grand title. Yeah. So that's I am, literally all you have to have. I am the grand curmudgeon of the highest grump. I'm Grand Doctor Principal. Um, I think okay. po- if you've ever po- seen The Ninth Gate, it's kind of like that, but with less sex. Sure. Okay. Um, yeah. Um, I'll think about it. Do it, because they're, they're, I've decided that's going under our names on the website. It's it's sure, it's okay. very not serious. No, um, no, our no. friend Kyle is Grand that's Politico. Fine. Uh, <laughs> no, that's fine. That. Did you guys see what I changed my Twitter bio to? I did not. No, I haven't been on Twitter in a while. Uh, I changed it to because, and like, I'll change it back eventually. Um, but uh, right now it is. I've forgotten more about Gundam Wing fanfic pairing codes than you'll ever know. <laughs> nice. You may appreciate this. Paul and I came up with an intentionally badly conjugated Latin name for our secret society. Same yeah. What the fuck it is? Yeah, I don't remember it anymore. Damn it's it. been a while. <laughs> but we we just we 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 just pulled uh, words out of the Latin to English dictionary and then oh intentionally badly conjugated them so that it would be gibberish. All right. All right. All right. That's how I came up with my very You guys can have this conversation while I'm in the bathroom again. Uh, Until (laughs) next time, I have been Matt. I've been Mia. I'm Paul. And we will drink with you again soon. Thanks for listening. Drink. Drink.
This podcast.